So we're ending our series, or coming close to. We have one more message after this morning. We're close to the end. We're at the end of the last chapter of the book of Jonah. And we've been looking at his life so that we can prepare our hearts, allow, rather, God to prepare our hearts, and be submissive and, and bowing our knee to him so he can change us from the inside out, to prepare our hearts to not only receive God's mercy, as Lexi finally allowed herself to do, but also to be vessels to give and extend his mercy to those who do not yet know him. So last week we ended with this text. So for those of you that haven't been here and, and you're, you're just joining us this morning, we've been going through the book of Jonah, and Jonah starts with the God's call on a man, Jonah, a prophet, prophet of Israel. And he tells Jonah, I specifically want you to go to the pagan city of Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. It's on the far, far east portion of the known world in Jonah's day. So he chooses to go to the far, far west portion on the map in Jonah's day. He hops on a boat, heads to Tarshish. God opposes him, sends a great storm. Jonah is tossed overboard. The, the, the fish swallows Jonah. The fish pukes Jonah. Jonah repents. He goes. He preaches reluctantly. And then they all repent. And Jonah is furious. He stomps his feet. He pouts. I knew it. This is why I fled to Tarshish, because I knew that you are a merciful God, slow to uh, anger and abounding in steadfast love. In other words, he had a heart like Lexi's. He was irritated that God extends mercy to people who don't deserve it. And so then God says this. This is where we end it. Do you do well to be angry? Jonah doesn't answer. He doesn't answer the question. Instead, Jonah goes outside of the city, the east of the city, and made a booth for himself there, and he sat under the shade till he should see what would become of the city. In other words, he's sitting there hoping, hoping and waiting for God to change his mind and give these Ninevites what they all deserve. So last week, the, the title of the message was the persistent problem of idolatry. And last week we looked at what Jonah's idol was. Now Jonah repented of his idol when he was in the belly of the fish. He prayed these words. We looked at this in chapter 2, verse 8. He said, Those who give regard to vain idols forsake the steadfast love of the Lord. So Jonah knew that. He's like, Ah, my idolatry. Here it is. He repented. He confessed it. And then he went on to preach. And here's the way it works. In my life, works this way in your life. We think that we have our idols conquered. We think that, ah, yes, I've been so self-righteous, I've been lusting, I've been proud, I've been this. Oh, that problem was so 2020. But I've given that all to Jesus and I'll never struggle with that again until you struggle with that again. And we see Jonah's idolatry come back with a vengeance when he is face-to-face opposing the will of God. And today we're not going to look at the persistent problem of idolatry. Today we're going to look at God's persistent pursuit of idolaters. And that's good news. That's good news. For every willful, self-righteous Jonah, or Alexi, or Brooks, or you, understand there is a God that created the heavens and the earth. And he annoyingly will pursue you to the ends of the earth with his love, 
with his grace. So we're going to take a look at four things in this morning's text. So if you have your Bible open, open to Jonah chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 5, 5 through 11. We're going to take a look at the appointments that God sends our way that are quite unwelcome oftentimes. We're going to look at the questions that God asks Jonah and us. We're going to look at the purpose, the objective in God sending those appointments and asking those annoying questions, what he's trying to do, what he is aiming to do in our lives. And then lastly, we're going to take a look at how should we respond? How should we respond? So open up your Bibles and uh, let's get to it. I'm going to pray as you open up to chapter four. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Lexi's testimony. Thank you for your persistent pursuit of self-righteous people and those who, who are convinced they have no righteousness and no worth at all. We thank you, Lord, that you pursued Jonah. We thank you that you pursued the Ninevites. We thank you that you are pursuing us. I pray that the word of God preached this morning would have an effect even on my heart as I preach it. Lord, leave none of us unchanged. We pray that you would make us alive in Christ. May Jesus be lifted up and exalted and all glory go to him this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so let's take a look at the appointments. So the appointments, if we go back to the very beginning of the book of Jonah, we have God appointed a prophet. Jonah, I appoint you. He didn't say this in so many words. He's told Jonah, go to Nineveh. He appointed Jonah to go to Nineveh. Jonah, of course, refused. He appointed the storm to hinder Nineveh from fleeing. So the whole appointment of the storm was to stop Jonah dead in his tracks, which he did. He appointed the fish to rescue Jonah after he was thrown overboard. And then he appointed the repentance of the Ninevites after Jonah preached, which is not in Jonah's game plan. And then we have today's text. So Jonah went off to the city and sat to the east of the city to make a booth for himself there. And he sat under it in the shade till it should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant. There's three more appointments. He appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Verse 7. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. So you have all of these appointments, all of these appointments. Now let's take a look at how does Jonah, how does Jonah react to each of the appointments? And by way of application, when these things, these circumstances come into your life that God ordains, some of them you like, some of them you don't like. Let's take a look at how Jonah responds, his view of appointments. If if these divinely ordained appointments increase Jonah's happiness quotient, how does he respond? What's the text say? He's exceedingly happy. Now that phrase, exceedingly happy, uh, some commentators refer to it. It's, it's not just he's glad. You know, I'm just, I'm grateful for the shade. Thank you, God. 
That's, that's I'm glad for the shade. Exceedingly happy is, it's just, it's, a, it's bordering on exuberance to the point of absurdity. Exceedingly, he's not just happy, he's exceedingly happy. Where have we seen that word exceedingly before? Backtrack a few verses earlier when the circumstances don't meet Jonah's approval. He's exceedingly angry. So he, the pendulum is swinging here. He's exceedingly angry. Now he's exceedingly happy. Why is he so happy over a shade tree? couple different reasons. couple different reasons. Number one is the obvious. Well, maybe not so obvious. You've noticed in Iowa... It's hot in the summer, yes, except for today. But it's not so much the heat, it's the humidity. No one says that ever in Iraq in the desert. When it's hot there, it's just hot. Now, typically at the hottest, it's going to get just over 100 degrees. And you say, well, there's the heat index, whatever. If you're in northern Iraq, it's going to get to maybe 130 and then add on to the scorching wind. And it's not so much the heat, it's the humidity. There is no humidity there. And when you increase a, add a scorching wind with 130 degrees Fahrenheit, that increases the rate of evaporation. It's not just uncomfortable, it's dangerous. Literally, he could die. So he's exceedingly glad. He's got some shade. He's got some shade. So there's the physical reason, but there's a spiritual reason potentially. We're not told if this is true, but typically when, when something good happens to a Christian, something good happens. How many of you, just participate, just roll with it here. Something good, you get a promotion. Uh, some blessing befalls you. How many of you have heard this phrase from those you love and your friends? Well, you must be doing something, right? Anybody ever hear that? What does that imply? It implies that the shade tree that comes into your life is evidence that you are doing something pleasing to God. So it's possible. I can't prove this from the text. It's possible that the shade tree comes into Jonah's life. He's like, God's seen it my way. He's happy with my credit attitude because now he's seen the light and he is going to pour out his wrath on these undeserving Ninevites. Just like Lexi. Lexi has turned God to see it her way. Through the force of argument, Jonah now believes, possibly, that, aha, God is favoring me, and he is now going to do that which I desire. Wipe these undeserving people out. So he's exceedingly happy for about 10 seconds. Well, technically, it's more than 10 seconds. For about 12 hours. So take a look at what happens next. The next appointment, but God appointed a worm that attacked the plant. So he withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. Now, scorching east wind, as we mentioned, this is not simply it's hot, it's dangerous. It's dangerous. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. He's dehydrating. He's approaching the place where this could be physically dangerous for him. Let's take a look at how he responds. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. The sun beat down on the head of Jonah that he might faint, be faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it's better for me to die than live. Now, he said this before already. He said this before already. When God granted the, uh, the Ninevites repentance, he wants to die. He's so angry he could die. And now he's thinking, I might die. Maybe God is following through. So he just, okay, God, 
I asked for it earlier. Just bring it on. I'm done. I'm done. Just kill me now. Kill me now. I'm so miserable physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. I'd, I'd rather die than go on. And it looks like I'm going to, so just let's just get it over with. Just kill me. Kill me now. So here's, here's the deal. You and I, Jonah included, we tend to view our circumstances as the end. In other words, what's the goal in life? Shade. What's the goal in life? Comfort. What's the goal in life? Prosperity. What's the goal in life? Happy relationships to get along. I just want to be happy. And we tend to view anything that increases our happiness quotient as shade. So you got a good relationship with your spouse, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, shade. You got a good job, shade. Things are going well, shade. And you're exceedingly happy, and that's the end. We tend to view the circumstances in the end. Now you get a worm come along, worm comes along, well, that's a negative circumstance, and it threatens, it threatens your happiness quotient. And then your shade falls over, and now I've lost my happiness. And we tend to view all of those things that come into our life as either things which make us happy or things which don't make us happy. We tend to view the circumstances as the end, the goal, what we want, or what we can't get, right? So that's Jonah. That's Jonah. Now, if you look at God's perspective, God doesn't see those circumstances as the end. He sees them as a means to an end. Whether it's the fish, whether it's the storm, whether it's the shade, whether it's the worm, whether it's the wind, the plant, those are in, they're not an end in and of themselves. They're a means to an end. So here we have a look at what Paul says thousands of years later, hundreds of years later, in, in, in the book of Romans. Earlier, he said that anyone is in Christ, there's no condemnation for anyone who is in Christ because Christ has done what they could not do. He accomplished all righteousness in his life and took our sin. And then he says later in verses uh, 15 through 18, he says, I don't consider my suffering worth being compared to the glory that's going to be revealed in me because God's doing something through that suffering. And now he articulates that very clearly in verse 28 and 29. This is a very important verse. He says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. The storm, the fish, the plant, the worm, the wind, everything. Now, it doesn't mean that all of those things are good, but they are being used by God for good, right? So, Verse 29, why? Those are, the, those are the means. Those are the means. Verse 29, what's the end? The end. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So what's God trying to do? He's trying to mold and shape Jonah in the image of Jesus. And he's using all of those circumstances, good, bad, and neutral, to that end that in. Now the circumstances, some of them are pleasant, some of them are not so pleasant. Some of them are life-threatening. The storm was life-threatening, the east wind is life-threatening. But God is using all of them for his good. Does it mean that all things are good? For example, some of you, uh, you have loved ones, they've received a malignant diagnosis. They have cancer. Hey, cancer's not good. The Bible doesn't say that cancer is good. The death of loved one, that's not a good thing. It's not a good thing. Death is not good. Death is awful. Jesus came to conquer sin and death 
It's not good. But there are other things in our lives which are good. You have a good relationship. It brings you pleasure. Well, that's good. You have a good job. It brings you income. Well, that's good. And then there are things which are neither good nor bad. They're just kind of neutral. But God is using all of those for, for good. So, before we move into the next section here, I want you to think about your circumstances. What things are you experiencing? Storms, fish, wind, plants, worms. Some of you are like, she's sitting right next to me, that worm. Or he's sitting next to me. Who are the individuals that God is using to chew on you, if you will? Or that are threatening to bring down the shade plant? How do you respond to those? How do you respond to those? So let's now move on to the questions. Because God wants us... He wants Jonah, he wants us to take those thoughts captive and deal with them. We have those thoughts, we have those feelings, those feelings evoke emotions, yes? But oftentimes we're angry like Jonah, we're depressed like Jonah, or we're exceedingly happy like Jonah. We don't know why, we just are. And we're glad that we're happy, or we're not glad that we're angry. But we're not asking the right questions. God, being the biblical counselor that he is, is more concerned that we understand our hearts than we simply experience our emotions. So he asks us these terribly annoying questions. Job, not Job, he asked Job a bunch of questions too. Jonah, do you do well to be angry? That was the question last week. It's the same question. In verse 5, he says, do you well, do well to be angry? And Jonah doesn't answer. He just goes and builds a booth and he sits on the edge of the city. In other words, he's like, la, 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 not listening. I'm just, I'm going to pout. How many of you have done that? You know God wants you to deal with something, and you know that you shouldn't be feeling the way that you're feeling, but you're just going to feel that way, and you're not going to deal with it. Anybody ever been there? Oh, whatever. There's okay, three or four honest people. Good. I'll speak to the rest of you, and all the other people can maybe catch on later. Everybody's done that everybody's done that. So that's what God is doing here. He comes back and he asks him the same question. Different circumstance. First he was angry that Nineveh repented. Now he's angry that he lost his plant. He lost his shade. And he is in danger of dying because it's hot. Well, he wants to die. And then God says, do you do well to be angry over the plant? Now, it's different this time. The first time around when God asks him these questions, Jonah does not respond. He just pouts and kind of goes off by himself. This time, Jonah, Jonah's had enough. He's like, yeah, you know what? Yes, I do have a right to be angry. I do well to be angry. I'm angry enough to die. So just kill me now. You want to know? I'm, I'm telling you. It's all out on the table now. You want to know my heart? There it is. There's all the garbage. Kill me. I am ticked off. First, you allow these evil, wicked people who don't have an ounce of righteousness to repent, and then you bestow grace and mercy on them, and then you cause this plant to come up, and then you take it away from me. So yes, kill me. I'm ticked. This is brutal honesty with God. And here's what is one of the amazing things. God doesn't just step on him. This is evidence of an incredibly merciful God. He is having a temper tantrum. And just like a parent who does not take the life of their toddler, 
but rather, no, you do have to hold my hand in the parking lot as you drag them through the parking lot to your car to put them in the car seat. Jonah is patient. Rather, Jonah. God is patient with Jonah. He does not give Jonah what he deserves. He doesn't give the Ninevites what they deserve. He doesn't give me what I deserve. And he's not giving you what you deserve. But why is he asking? Why is he asking? He wants Jonah to understand. He wants Jonah to understand what is in his heart. And by the way, this is, this is never pleasant. This is never pleasant. You feel anger, right? You feel depression. You feel joy. You feel euphoria. But we're not really asking ourselves hard questions. Why do I feel joy right now? Why do I feel anger right now? When you allow yourself to get, get real with God and, and let him show you what you're angry about, sometimes it's, it's more painful than the cause of the anger itself. Let's take a look at Jonah. Let's go a little bit deeper. He's complaining. You appointed shade, and then you appoint a worm. You appointed shade, and then you appoint a worm. Now, what is this all about? Is this really about a plant? Is this really about a worm? Is this really about a hot wind? Is that what... Now, Jonah is already angry enough to die before all of that. What's the issue? What's his idolatry? It's his nationalism. It's Jonah sees himself as a righteous man in a righteous nation with a nation that deserves God's mercy. And as we learned last week, he sees Nineveh as an existential threat to his nation and his way of life. He's a nationalist. He's a nationalist. How's this work? Jonah says to God, you appointed shade. Yes, the literal tree, but also you appointed a nation, my nation, Israel, to be your people. And and the only time we have a reference to Jonah in the Old Testament, Jesus refers to him quite often. But the only time we have a reference to Jonah, other than here in the book of Jonah, is 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25. And in that case, God came to Jonah and said, I want you to go to the king of Israel, Jeroboam II, who was an awful human being, who sinned greatly and led his people to do the same. He was a full-blown idolater. But here's what God says. Go and tell him that I will increase your borders. In other words, go and tell a wicked, awful human being, a worthless king who does not worship me but worship idols, go and tell him that I'm going to cause a shade tree to grow up. And I'm going to cause his nation, my people, to prosper under his leadership even though he's a pinhead. Go tell him that. And Jonah says, Oh, I'm all about that. He doesn't go to Tarshish then. Why? Because he likes the shade tree. Why? Because he lives under the shade. Why? Because he's an Israelite. It's his nation. As long as his people are prospering, he's okay with that. Even though they technically don't deserve mercy any more than the Ninevites, he's good with the shade. Ah, but then the worm comes along. Then Nineveh repents. And he sees... He sees the future, not literally, but he can read the handwriting on the wall. This is the worm that's going to chew through my tree. 
And within two generations, within two generations, this nation, this, these Assyrians, these Ninevites, their children and their grandchildren, they don't remember the repentance of their parents. And they become far greater and far more numerous and far more violent even than these Ninevites. And just like Jonah feared the east wing, Nineveh is the east of Jerusalem, they sweep into Israel and they annihilate the ten northern tribes of Israel. And they're no more. The ten tribes are literally wiped out. By who? These people. This is not about a plant. It's not about a literal worm, although it is about a plant and it is about a literal worm. What's your shade tree? And what's the worm? Everybody's got one. When it grows up, what makes you exceedingly happy? What's the one thing you have to have in life to have a good life? If you don't have it yet, or you do have it, what's the one thing that if it fell over, it would cause you to stop and ponder whether or not it's worth going forward? Could be your family. Could be your marriage. Could be your job. Let me ask it another way. What makes you really angry? What makes you exceedingly angry? Or what makes you exceedingly happy? Both of those things Jonah has to deal with. What? I'm, I'm exceedingly angry. Oh, I'm exceedingly happy now. Why? What's your shade tree? If it's taken away from you, it makes you angry. If you have it, hey, life's just awesome. For me, a couple years ago, got chewed through my shade tree. Fell over and I got angry. By the way, why do people get angry? Here's what I would say. I, would, I know better intellectually, but generally every time I was ever really, really angry, I would say it's because of stupid people. You, you, you identify that? Why do you get angry? Because people are stupid. That's what you'll say. That's what I'll say. It's like, no, 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 no. You don't get angry because people are stupid. You get angry because they chew through your tree. So for me, and I've shared all this in previous sermons, if you want the full gory details, go back and listen to the sermon series Blessed by Brokenness a few years ago. So I've all, I've all dumped this garbage in front of everybody. Everybody's heard this. I'm like, well, I haven't. We'll go back on the website. I don't have time to re-preach the whole sermon. But here's what God revealed. Brooks, you know what really, really makes you angry? Is when you are exposed... And it turns out you're not as righteous as you think you are. That's what would make me more angry than anything else. If someone exposed or challenged that I might be wrong or that I might be unrighteous in some way. And when that tree dropped, I literally had moments where I thought I should quit the ministry. I wasn't quite angry enough to die, but I was in enough despair that I didn't want to be in front of you. Why? Because you would know about me. I can't have that. I have to have people see me a certain way. It's, it's not that I became 
became a jerk. It's that I realized I was a jerk. I didn't become worse than I was. I just simply, God just said, he kept asking me the question, Brooks, what, why are you so angry? And then my world kind of fell apart. I was angry enough, not quite to die. I didn't want to die. I just wanted to pout. I wanted to quit. I wanted to cash it in. You're not any different. It's just you have a different tree maybe. What is it? What is it? I can't answer that for you. We know what it is for Jonah. We know what it is for Jonah. So do you do well to be angry? I didn't, even though at the time I would have told you, yes, I do well to be angry. Turns out, no, my anger was not righteous. So what's God's objective in asking these annoying questions? Push, push, push. Brooks, do you do well to be angry? Do you well? He didn't make those faces when he stalks. Like, do you do well to be angry? He keeps pushing. Do you do well to be exceedingly happy? What's your worth in? What's your, what are you running towards? He keeps asking. If we stop and go, well, let me think about it. I don't know. What's the objective? Why is he asking the question? Because he wants us to know, first of all, our heart, which will be painful if you let him show you what's there. But more importantly, or just as important, he wants you to know his heart. He wants, us, he wants you to know his heart. So, and the Lord said, Jonah, you pity the plant. Let's take a look at your circumstances here. You pity the plant for which you didn't labor. You didn't cause it to grow. You didn't make it grow. And it came into being in a night and it perished in a night. So that's what makes you exceedingly happy is the plant. You didn't do anything to bring it into existence and it's here today and it's gone tomorrow. And then he turns the corner and he says, shouldn't I have compassion? Shouldn't I have pity? Shouldn't I care about Nineveh, that great city in which there's more than 120 people who don't know the right hand from their left? And then he throws this in, which is, this is awesome. And the cattle? Shouldn't, shouldn't I care about them? Shouldn't I care about them? What's going on here? He wants Jonah to, to, to understand why he's compassionate and the things he's compassionate about compared to why God's passionate and the things he's compassionate about. So why, is, why does Jonah care about the plant? It's not a trick question. Why? Because he benefits from the plant. We tend to be compassionate towards people that make us happy. Who are we least compassionate towards? The worms that chew through the plant. So look at the national debate. Look at everything that's going on in your life personally and our lives corporately. Who are the people that you want to just go away? The people that are threatening your prosperity. The people that threaten to take away your shade tree, your way of life. And you see our culture changing rapidly and you are exceedingly angry because you can't stop the train. And you're, some of you are even angry towards God for allowing it to happen. Yes? Why? You didn't cause the prosperity that you're experiencing. Some of you are like, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I worked hard. Where'd you get your work ethic? 
Where'd you get your intelligence? Oh, so you chose your parents that had that European Germanic work ethic. Oh, you chose them, did you? Notice the rich sarcasm which is dripping from my mouth. You didn't choose nothing. You didn't cause the plant to grow, and you didn't take it down. Neither did I. Timber, but it's fallen, and we're mad, and we want to step on the worms. We are compassionate towards whatever brings us pleasure. And we are merciless towards anything which threatens our pleasure. God, on the other hand, is compassionate. The Ninevites don't bring, bring him pleasure. Oh, does Israel bring him pleasure? You know why I'm going to give myself for this nation? I just look at those people and they just make me happy. I just look at them dancing before the golden calf. My heart just skips a beat every time I look at them. They're just so, so pleasing to me. He's not merciful because they deserve mercy. This is the weird thing about God. I can't figure it out. He ties his pleasure to that which doesn't bring him pleasure. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need my repentance to be happy. He doesn't need Israel's repentance to be happy. He doesn't need Nineveh's repentance to be happy. He's self-sufficient. He was not in eternity past going... I'm so unhappy. It's the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's just us. I can't stand it. I need the angels. I need humanity. I need the universe. He doesn't need. If he needed, he'd cease to be God. And yet he does create. He loves to share his glory and his goodness with that which he creates. But he doesn't need us. And he binds his desire with the repentance of knuckleheads. But he doesn't need us. He's compassionate on the very people that make him angry. But he's slow to anger and quick to forgive and separates our sins as far as the east is from the right. I can't figure him out. And Jonah is frustrated with this merciful, gracious God. So, God needs nothing. He chooses and binds his desires with our well-being. So how do we respond to this? How do we respond to this? <laughs> Look at the end of the book of Jonah. I, I love and hate it simultaneously. Look at verse 11. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the right hand from their left and also much cattle? And the next verse is, there isn't one. It just ends. How many of you get mad at movies that end the wrong way? Any of you? How many of you have seen the movie Inception? Yes? There is a groan. Thank you for the groan. I remember sitting in, that, in the audience. Some of you are like, I haven't seen Inception. What's he talking about? That's your problem. I guess you'll have to go watch it. But it's, it's got a horrible ending. It's one of those mind benders, right? You can't figure out what's going on. And, and then there's this scene at the end, which is going to draw everything together. He spins the stupid top. He spins the stupid top. And it starts to wobble. And then the credits roll. What? And there was literally, there was literally a groan, just like there was a groan now. What? Jonah's ending. What? What's he do? 
Does the top fall over or does it keep spinning? Does Jonah say, you know what? I've been a total jerk this whole time. I get it. Or does he say, does he continue and persist in his stubborn stubbornness and, and remain? We don't know. Why doesn't Jonah tell us? Because Jonah's not about the fish. It's not about Jonah. It's about Jonah's God. And it's about those who are reading the book of Jonah. It's not about what Jonah does. It's about what are you going to do with this? What am I going to do with this? What are we going to do with this? That's the question. It's, it's genius to leave us hanging. It's almost like God did it on purpose. Now, I personally believe that Jonah repented. Why? I can't prove it from scripture, but let me tell you why I believe that. Because no one... How do we know all these horrible things about Jonah? He told everyone about it. So whether this is Jonah's own pen writing this or a scribe that wrote it, Jonah came back to Israel and told all of these things that God said and that he said. And I got the scribe is like, no, wait, Jonah, you, you didn't. You did not. You said that? You are an idiot. This is gold though. Keep, keep talking because you're the worst prophet ever. And I'm going to record this and everyone's going to read this and they're going to say, you know what? Let's not be like Jonah. There's no way that he doesn't repent. You know why? Because only repentant people are willing to let other people let them know how stupid they are. That's one of the only reasons why my preaching is remotely interesting is because you all are like, at least I'm not as bad as you. You laugh, but I've had you tell me that. That's why they're like, oh, you just, yeah, because God keeps hitting me over the head because I keep acting like Jonah. I believe sincerely, I can't prove it, but I believe that Jonah got it. Are we going to get it? First of all, will you receive God's mercy? The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, don't receive the mercy of God in vain. I've been preaching a long time here at this church. And I know there are people like Lexi here. You grew up here and you've been coming here and you think that God favors you because you're righteous. You don't know your right hand from your left. And if you continue on with the idea that somehow God believes you're good, and that's how you're right with him, you will be lost. So yes, repent of your sin, but please, for the sake of God's grace, repent of your righteousness, because it will kill you. Receive his grace, his unmerited favor, through faith. Cry out to him, tell him, Lord, I am a self-righteous, self-made person, or at least I think I am. And I need your grace. Or tell him, Lord, I am a moral degenerate. I know the difference between my right hand and my left hand, but I choose wickedness anyway. Tell him. He already knows. 
He's not asking you questions because he's not sure about your heart. He wants you to acknowledge what's in there so that you can ask for grace. So receive that grace. And then secondly, will you share God's mercy? Yes, the world is changing around us. It's changing around you. And yes, there are people that hate your faith and see you as a threat and your way of life as a threat to be eliminated. And yes, the worm's chewing through your prosperity and the tree's falling over and the wind is starting to blow. But will you share the mercy of God with those that don't deserve it? There's no reason why any of us have been born again except for his mercy. Except for the fact that God has appointed other individuals in our lives that were willing to explain the gospel to us. Will you be that person to someone else? Did you know that the statistically that 85% of all people that don't attend church have stated when asked, sure, I would come to church if someone invited me? The Ninevites are willing to come into the presence of the proclamation of the gospel if the Israelites would simply engage them. Oh, but we don't like them. They'll never come. We pre-qualify them. How do you think I ended up here? Well, I just got to look in the yellow pages looking for a good Bible teaching church. I didn't believe in the Bible. <laughs> I wasn't voted most likely to preach the gospel. I was voted most likely to do lewd things at parties in college. But here we all are. Will you receive the mercy of God and will you take it to other people like yourself who don't deserve it either? That's what God desires of us. His happiness is not dependent upon it, but a manifestation of his glory in our time, in our present circumstances are dependent on whether we receive and then declare his mercy. So we're going to end the service a little differently. We do this downtown every Sunday evening. So I'm going to ask you to stand. Symbolically, it's a way of acknowledging that we're to do more than passively hear the word of God. We're to do something with it. So we're going to end the service on our feet to communicate symbolically to God that we are ready to obey him with our hands and our feet. Let's pray. Father, we have received your mercy, change our hearts so that we would not only receive your mercy, but we would be merciful to those who have yet to receive your mercy. Jesus, you served us by living a life we could never live and dying a death we could never die. Grant us the will to live for you and to serve those around us. Spirit, our hearts are just like Jonah's. For those that are content in their self-righteousness, would you change our hearts? Open the eyes of our hearts that we might receive your grace 
and that we might know the depths of your mercy and love and in knowing that love be changed by it. Lord, we thank you for your son Jesus and may we live for him who died for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless, go in grace. We'll see you next week.